on your part. All right, here we go. Welcome to the On Track and Field podcast. As always, I'm JT Ayers. Thanks for joining us. On Track and Field, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, regardless of when you're listening to this. It's track season, and you need to buy some equipment. You need to get the best of the best for the kids that need this stuff. So go to ontrackandfield.com and add your promo code. When you check out, just type in track talk, all one word, and you get 15% off right there. In fact, just find me on social media and I'll get you in contact with the CEO. He doesn't know that, but I'll give you his personal cell, social security number, address, anything you want. He'll hook you up on track and field. I work with him and you should too. With me today, it's a, it's a Christmas miracle for me. It's Carl Lewis. And I right here, I wrote in his bio. It's Carl Lewis. What do I need to say? Nine-time Olympic champion, eight-time world champion, and head coach at the University of Houston, Speed City. Coach, thanks for joining me. Oh, great. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Okay, I have a question. It's just burning in the back of my mind. I've been thinking about it for a long, long time. How is an how is a athlete as your caliber become a even maybe even better coach? That does not always translate. In fact, more often than not, you see great athletes become terrible coaches. And so yeah. you've done the opposite. How have you been able to transition from great athlete to ambassador of the sport and then a very good coach? Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, well, really it comes down to Tom Telez, my coach. Um, he did not focus on emotion. It was always about science um, and technique. So basically, I don't look at myself as a coach when I'm out with the athletes. I look at myself as a teacher. Um, and fortunately, growing up, my parents were both public school teachers. So I had teachers in my family. I had coaches in my family. I had science and facts that were always presented to me. So when I, it came time for me to do this, I had the experience of, of being on a track club, Willingboro Track Club growing up that my mother and father started. So I saw how they were interacting with kids. That was just a normal space for me. And then to get to Coach Telez, I want to hear all of that. If you do it this way scientifically, it's going to work. So I've kept it simple. And, and I've also understood two things. One, you, 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 know, you, you want to know as much as you possibly can and, um, and therefore ask, have the answer for the student athlete. Number two, it really doesn't matter what I accomplished. Um, I accomplished so much. So the, the a probability of someone getting nine gold medals I work with is just very, very low. So it isn't a matter of me looking at them saying, pushing them at the same level. I always ask every single student athlete, the first thing I ask them is, who are you at 40? And they tell me. So then I base everything individually on who they want to be. And so that's it. I'm, I've got my medals. Um, I took this job for free when I started as a volunteer. And um, I have my fame. I've got everything. So I don't really need anything from them. And when I work with the athletes, I'm not competing against other schools. We're just trying to make them the best they can be. Well, in 2013, you start becoming, you know, the coach at your alma mater, University of Houston. What made you want to go coach? Like, how do they entice you enough to go, especially <laughs> when you're doing for no money? How'd you end up doing that? Well, it's actually kind of the opposite because I moved back to Houston from New Jersey uh, in 2013. And basically, I look back on my career. I had a great career, a lot of opportunities. So I was 52 years old. Um, I owned my home. I, owned, I had no bills. I had everything I needed. And so, and I had an outside income. So I said, let me help. And it just so happened that Cameron Burrell, Leroy Burrell, my good friend and coach there, he, he was a freshman coming in. And so I said, and, I, and Leroy, I knew that he had 
you know, it's just not easy to always coach your son. So it was just kind of a thing that I remember when you were born, young man. <laughs> remember, I remember when your parents were met. So um, it, it was like, yeah, I'll help out. And then after a year, I kind of said, let me help more to try to help build the program because he'd been there, had a lot of success for a long time. And, it, and I think that the program was successful, but kind of in a rut. And it just needed it, anyone or any something to come and say, hey, let's just with a new perspective, especially something when they had no clue what was going on in terms of how college track worked, scoring. I had no clue. So I had that optimism of not like this great athlete, but of this person that didn't know anything. That's so fun. Well, and then in July, they make you the head coach. Was that something that you thought, yeah, this is going to be something that I really want to do? Or is that something you're like, I'm not sure if this is for me? I mean, because obviously becoming a head coach, there's so much now you have to do that you didn't have to do when you were an assistant coach. Yeah. Um, how has that transition <laughs> been for you, especially with recruiting? Yeah, well, well, actually, it's it's been a lot smoother than I thought. So what happened is when Leroy took the job at Auburn, um, Will Blackburn, who was the associate head coach, came to me and said, "Hey, I know you don't want to do all that paperwork. I know you don't want to do all that stuff because you're too busy." So he said, "Why don't we, in, in essence, split the job?" So Will is the associate head coach, and I'm his, um, the associate coach. So he's there, and then I'm the associate head coach. So what my focus really is is on the track. And the recruiting, the coaching, I kind of oversee all of that aspect of it. And I'll be making a lot of decisions because I technically oversee the sprints, hurdles, and jumps because they're all together. Um, and Will does a lot of the machinery of it. And, and so we respect each other, knowing each other for years. And so it's worked out extremely well. We, we always discuss all decisions. But it was his idea. And he reached out to me. And there's nothing that's going to be done with this program without looking at both Will and I. So if you're looking at when they say, they say um, director of track and field and head coach, basically he's a director. I'm the head coach. Got it. What a nice partnership you guys have decided to do too, especially something that you guys have been probably doing for a long period of time anyways. Um, and regardless. And so you talk about when you, when you grab a recruit and the first thing you say to them is when, Hey, when you're 40 years old, um, you know, where do you want to be? What does that your life look like then? And then you go from there. Well, what are some of those experiences that you're able to take as an athlete when you were their age in their early twenties and then, you know, kind of infusing them now? I mean, are you talking about routine, mental preparation, confidence? I mean, what are some of those things that you can do better than anybody else because you were in their shoes, you know, not too long right. ago? Yeah. It, it, well, it's, it's, it's actually, believe it or not, it's quite a bit long ago, but, but um, <laughs> the thing, the thing, I mean, like 40 years. But the thing about it is that um, my, my career happened so fast. And I think the number one issue, I knew exactly what I wanted to accomplish when I stepped on that campus. I wanted to be wealthy. I wanted to be famous. And I wanted to do it in track and field. And so, and I knew how to do that. It was going to take work. But it started with being a 29-foot long jump. So when I tried, how, that's where it starts. And whether we know it or not, I trained. I did extra workouts. It wasn't like a sneaking in. But, but I trained with the sprinters and then went back and did my own long jump workout practice afterwards. And so um, the first thing is that track and field is very, very difficult. I, and I've said this, the long jump is the most difficult event in the sport. So it takes a lot of practice over and over and over and over. And that's the biggest thing I try to equate to them. Secondly, is you go to college to make money. I don't care who you are. That's your objective. So how do we merge your academic and your athletic career to maximize your financial gain in the future. Because, you know, when, when, when a parent and an athlete comes there, 
the first thing I say is, look, I tell a parent, I'm on your team. You know, I'm on your team to keep this move, this movie going. But at the end, the, the biggest thing I want to do is make sure they only visit your house after the day they come with this campus. They're not moving back in. So um, they, they, we're really clear about these things. And the university has our support. Obviously, I've went there. I've been there. The alumni has a support. So it's just a matter of being factual about it. I, I'm, when I recruit, I don't believe in calling you on your birthday and sending you gifts and doing all <laughs> I don't do that. It, it, because, you know, I, I try to make it clear to the kids, I'm not trying to convince you to come to Houston. I want you to be convinced that I can help you get what you want. It's not about me. It's about you. Can I do what you want? So that's why I put the 40-year-old up front. That's why I talk about why you go to college. Because now all of a sudden, it's about you. And can I help you get that done? So what do you look for when you're trying to recruit a kid? I mean, what are those those kind of, and we talk about key performance indicators when we're talking about sprint philosophy, but what are mm -hmm. those things that you look for with particular kids besides them really wanting to come to Houston? Yeah. Well, the, the number one thing over the last three or four years, um, every single athlete I, I, I've recruited has come here, has reached out to us. Um, I, I utilize social media. I know a lot of the coaches um, and athletes understand what we're doing. So um, my thing is that I'm always looking for someone to coach and develop. Um, if you look at the program, we don't, I haven't had transfers. I've had a couple of junior college kids. We, I have no interest in the portal whatsoever. Uh, I look for an athlete that might've been injured in high school. That's had great times. Um, in a lot of ways, I look at someone who's still underdeveloped physically and not that we can develop because we get kids and we develop them. We take someone like an Edward Sumler who ran well in high school but last year he ran 10.08. You talk about Cameron Burrell. If you look at his career, he got better every year. Mario Burke. Um, that's what we are. We're, we, we coach and we teach. So I'm looking for an athlete that's right on the edge. Uh, uh, it's not about the time. Their time may be 10.4, 10.5, but they may have the right body type. Um, we're in a time now where you can't talk about weight. So unfortunately for a lot of young women, we're going to end up recruiting less and less women because of girls a little thick in high school then you're probably not even going to look at them anymore because you can't, you can't help them. So these are the kind of things, but the, the basis of it is that we're not a portal school. We're, we're not a manager management program. We're a coaching and teaching program. And so I'm looking for people that are on the second level that we know can be at the top. If we just work with them. I love it. That's a great answer. In fact, I'm going to replay this for all my student athletes and be like, look at this is, this is what you're hearing and this is what you need to go find. We right. want, especially as a high school coach, I want my athletes to go find someone like you. I want to, right. I want them to find a coach that thinks about those things rather than just all the flash and this and that and taking pictures and cameras spinning around. Like that's all, that's all great. But what happens when you get there? Yeah. That, and that's the, that's the bottom line. What do you really want? You know, I mean, that's, I try to put it down to what you really want. When I asked a 40 year uh, question, oftentimes kids will say, I want to go to four Olympics. I want to go to six world championships. I want to be a doctor and I want to be married. I want to have three kids. Well, first of all, it's a boy. I shut him down and say, you're going to have the amount of kids the wife wants to have. But <laughs> so we'll get that out of the way. But then on the other side, so you want to be all of these things. Well, how does it work? And next thing you know, we've mapped it through. Well, it's only two Olympics. And instead of being a, a brain surgeon, I want to be a podiatrist. You know, <laughs> And I'm getting married at 35 and I only have one kid. So it's all a part. Of it. So now that we have this worked out, let's help you get it done. It's always about you. It's funny because you and I were mentioned, just talking and you mentioned right before the podcast, you're like, man, I never really thought I was going to be a coach. And then look where I am now, 10 years later. You're talking like a serious head coach, man. I mean, this is stuff like I'm excited reading your next book. By the way, 
the book you wrote with Tom Telez that came out this last year. Mm-hmm. Um, excellent. It's really, really good. What made you think that that was something you wanted to do with Tom and, and put that all, and especially in, and package it in that way? Right. Well, um, first of all, I want to thank um, pe- people that wanted to help us get it done because it wasn't easy. Um, the biggest, the number one reason um, is because I wanted Coach Telez to have a legacy. Um, he deserves the legacy of being one of the greatest coaches of all time, and, he, and it needs to be in print. Secondly, when I came into the sport, as we and all can imagine, there's so many new ideas that everyone says everything's new now. Science doesn't change. So science, they're, they're, we know more about body, nutrition, uh, all of these kinds of things. We have film in a way that we can shoot on our phone where we didn't even have that. But the science does not change. And so we wanted to make sure that we took the book and, and, and gave the science of it. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a tough read sometimes, if, but if you're interested, you can get it. And even some parents, we want them to know so they don't have to know everything in the book, but it's like, well, that doesn't sound right, coach. I mean, you're working with my 12-year-old. So it was about legacy. It was about making people understand that this stuff is about science. There, is, there are ways you move and what you do that help you become better and faster. And, um, and I, I just think that I'm happy the way it's going. Um, I'm happy the way that people are understanding what we're trying to do with the book. And I look forward to being for years and years to come. So I, I'm going to transition now because you're the authority and, and that can answer this question. Myself and a lot of peers, we're dumbfounded watching these 400 kids move down to the hundred and like Fred Curley, Michael Norman doesn't even matter. Like speed is becoming something that's extremely important. Whereas 25 years ago, it was about volume and and in trying to like keep those things in balance at all time or intention. Mm-hmm. What's your thoughts on these kids or these, these professional athletes moving up and down from the four, the two, the one, and being a very, yeah. very successful. Well, in, in, those, in those cases, most cases, they were sprinters that went up. Um, mm-hmm. Fred and Michael Norman were sprinters in high school. So that's, that's what a lot of it. And, and I, I've thought, I've talked about that a long time. Coastal Les always said, if you want to run fast, you have to run fast. So mm-hmm. we we were never focused on the volume, the quarter milers, the sprinters. We were focused on higher quality, less quantity. So that's something that I've always understood from based on what Coach Telez did. And, and when Wade Van Niekirk came and finally broke the world record, it was simply because he was faster and they couldn't catch him. He had the leg speed they didn't have. So if you go back to Michael Johnson, of course, Michael did both. So that, that shows it, it kind of been going, but he didn't go all the way down to the hundred. So I, I think it's something that's always been there. And most of the cases, sprinters have a lot of a success, then they move up to the 400, whereas Fred, Fred ran the sprints in high school, and so did Michael Norman. So I think that they're, they're unique because they were guys that, that were able to have more success going up to the 400. So I look at it that way, and then they're back down to the 100 and um, being able to do what they do. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable watching you know the talent, that's that's the young talent that's coming out. And it seems, especially this last world championships being in Eugene, it seems like there is a little bit of push that American uh, track and field is becoming more of a global thing. And I, you know, I've, your, your Twitter follow is awesome. I love watching what you put and you put some really good, humble content out there, but what is it going to take for track and field to become more of a brand that could be on par with some of the other sports in the world? How can American track and field be like European track and field? Well, let's just, I think you started off with a very good question um, and a very good observation, rather. It is global now. And what's happened with track and field is that the athletes have lost control of it. Um, when we came in the 80s and 90s, we really fought hard to make it professional. It was important to us to get it done. And we did get that done. By the early 90s, it was professional. 
Um, and then everyone thought they're professional. So what's happened is that you have to understand the IAAF is the top, the World Athletics Federation. They want an amateur sport. We have to be honest. They want an amateur sport. They do not want professionalism. So therefore, they've done everything possible to go back. I, um, one of the things that happened back in 1992, the Golden League was presented to me in, in Barcelona. And I said, absolutely not. I'll never come. It'll, it'll be terrible. The Federation should not have a league. They should be focused on supporting the other events. And guess what? I retired in 97. The Golden League started in 97. Mm -hmm. So the athletes have lost control of it. And, and they're, now they don't have the will to do what it takes to get control again. If you really want to get back control and understand what's going on, then the athletes have to, have to learn what those two-letter word that's very powerful is no. Um, they're not going to get control again unless they just decide that we're not going to do what you asked to do. You know, in 2019, I was in Doha, and I talked about the world championships in 97. They made 60000 for a winner. And they got a Mercedes-Benz, which is about 93000 total in value. Well, in 2019, the Mercedes is gone and they got 60000 It's 33000 in, in uh, value. So why do you go? Why do you continue to go? Well, I hear the message, well, if I don't go, someone else will go. Yeah, but it's not about going. It's about the story. Because in 1989, when the national championships in Houston, I boycotted it for that very reason. Well, only two people did. And the Federation, you know, the USA track and field kept talking about, well, no one else, no one else said it. But guess what? The stands were empty and every single athlete was asked, what do you think about that issue? And so the story became about the boycott, not about the championships, even though there were some great performances. So it's the same thing. The athletes have no control of their careers. They've, they've abdicated that to the agents. And then the agents and the athletes have no control of the events. Um, there's no cohesive message to what they want to do because they don't want it professional. And until they understand and, and understand that and realize what you're going to have to do, that's it. They're in the exact same position we were 40 years ago. They didn't want it professional. We forced it. And now they're not forcing it. So that's, that's really what it needs to happen. That's a really interesting perspective. And then let me take you even further back because now I'm a dad and I'm going to ask you a question as a, as a dad that has four kids that love track and field. There's like I did I'm watching you and they're watching guys like Noah Lyles and, you know, I mean, they're having a great time in the sport just like I did you. And then you even mentioned it earlier and I, I want to make sure I don't put words in your mouth, but the Santa Monica track club, you you're saying your parents were involved in that. No, no, actually my parents started willing Girl track club when I was a kid oh, in 1969. Yeah. So, and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because in 1969, my mother started a club. I was eight years old. Um, <laughs> it was started for girls only you know, because she wanted girls to have access. And my father was involved, obviously, as well. And in the next year, boys joined, and that was it. So I, they were our coaches all the way up through high school. And then when high school, um, Coach Paul Minori was the head coach of the track team. Great guy, wonderful relationship. And then I went to Tom Tellez, and that was it. So really, if you talk about, you know, from 1970 to 1997, I had my youth parents, my high school coach, and Tom Tellez, that's it. You know, and so there was to me there was a there was a there was a continuity between the two because it was always a connection and the relationships were great. Wow, that's really interesting because now we're talking about, especially from a high school perspective, my athlete wants their six you know private coaches on the side. At the same time, they're trying to get high school coaches. You're even saying, "Hey, no, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Do something that you love, and you're going to get better, especially if you have good people around you." Um, 
There's not well, a lot of Tom Telezzi out the, there. Yeah, but I think one of the things is that I had every interest whatsoever to find out all the information I could. What happens is that, you know, I, I even see it with the, the college kids. The college kids come around all the time, and the first thing you want to do, my, I'm tight today, so they're in the training room. Or um, I don't feel well, blah, blah, blah. It's always someone else doing something for them. And I think what, what I tell you, if, you're, if your legs are sore, you're tight today, then go out and jog more. I always call it tussing. You know, the old days, they say tussing cured everything. Oh, well, yeah, that's me, how old Chris Rock stand up. Yeah, yeah. Tussing is, is jogging. <laughs> you know, go get, go get some tussing. Go, go jog somewhere and, and loosen yourself up. Because, see, the thing is that you, you, you mentioned earlier about understanding this. When I went to the LA Olympics, um, I competed seven out of eight consecutive days. You're going to tell me I wasn't dead, tired, sore. I was dead. Every day I, I started growing up earlier. And, and so I understand these things. So the, the real issue is that, like you said, they have their six people because they don't want to do it themselves. Mm. You know, take control. I, I hated the training room. You would never see me in there unless I was actually independently injured, which didn't happen that much. And so I stayed out. And, you know, another fact I tell them, I was ranked in the top 10 in the world for eight in one of the three events for 18 consecutive years. In that period of time, I had two bad hamstring injuries and two knee surgeries. So when you're telling me how to work hard and how to, to, to get through it, I know how to do that. You're talking about being ranked in the top 10 in the same season I had a knee surgery. So I, I get it. And so I think that what they have to do is understand, take control of your athleticism, take control of your career. Even the, even the athletes that call themselves professional, because I just say post-collegiate, mm -hmm. um, they're not in control of their careers. Their agents are. They're not, they're not running their show. And so what they are is instead of being the CEO, they're the product. Wow. That's powerful words. Let me, I, I promised you that. I mean, by the way, I can talk to you for about six more hours if you let me, but I promised you I'd keep it short. Um, I want to end with this. Your perspective is very unique because of where you were and where you are now. When you're looking at athletes and it's kind of maybe dips into the question I just asked you and what you were talking about. Um, you know, when you look at the athletes now and the athletes, then what's something that all great track and field athletes have in common. And I asked the same question to Dan O'Brien and I want to hear what you have to say, because so far it seems to be very similar for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a work ethic. I mean, look, it's in track and field, you get better in practice. You know, I always say you get better in practice and you show it in a meet. So that's why I, I'm not into clapping and all of this stuff because, that you know, if you want to go take a test, you don't go there and clap. You don't put on earphones. You study. So I think the thing is that the people that are good that I've found want to work. They don't mind doing the work and they don't mind listening. And, and, and they're not afraid. We have a program that I want you to be ready three months a year, May, June, July, that's it. And everything else is preparing you to be ready for May, June, and July. So we, in a lot of ways, train straight through the indoor season. So the kids are like, why are we still in flats in December in certain workouts? I said, because we are still six months away from when I want you to really be ready. So it's practice, that's it. And they, and they have the ability to want to work hard and understand that um, it's got to be hard and smart. The thing is that gets me with athletes is that if I, if I, and I say this, look, if I tell you to put your chin down, that should be something I tell you two or three times and you should be walking across campus, putting your chin down, whatever. But if I tell you in a month from now, then it's one of two things. Either you're not good enough or you don't give a damn. You know, in both ways, you're not going to make it. 
the ones that are great, you're not telling them those things a month from now. Wow. Well, there you have it. Um, coach, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and talking to you. And um, please let us know right now, like where can we follow your success? We want to follow the kids at University of Houston, and we're going to yeah. continue to see you guys do amazing things. I mean, Speed City, that's a cool brand. So, yeah, you know, what? Yeah, where can we follow you on social media, website? Let, let the audience know. Yeah, University of Houston Track and Field. We're on, on Twitter, uh, Instagram. You know, of course, you know, mine is Carl underscore Lewis um, on Twitter, and then I'm on Instagram as well. Um, and you mentioned the Speed City. The whole idea behind East Town Speed City was creating a separate brand that kids can easily follow. And that was, and so, and, and it meant something. And, and it's funny because we've had high jumpers, distance runners. I want to be a part of H-Town Speed City. So it's really separating it out because we just want to be like Houston track and field, but you can, you can follow us. Um, H-Town Speed City is a, is a hashtag that we use. Um, University of Houston track and field cross country, obviously for track and field as same for Instagram. And then as you know, you, you can follow me, Carl Lewis. And you know what? I'm open. I take direct messages. That's where I get most of my communication. Kids will get on and direct message me or they'll tag us, which I think is a brilliant idea with these young athletes do. They have a performance. They tag who they want to go to see. And so these are the things. Utilize those tools because we want to work with people that want to be the best they can be. And, and it doesn't matter if you're the absolute best. Reach out. I'll look at it. And if I see, oh, my God, this kid never finished a season healthy. This kid um, needs to work on his hurdle a little bit. Oh, this kid. We'll look at that and say, oh, okay, fine. You didn't run the fastest time. You were 25th in the country. But you get in here and we're in the program. It takes a year in most cases. Then you're going to be there at the end. All right, there you go. Potential, coachability, accountability. There you go. If you have those things, someone like Carl Lewis will go and take you and then make you great. And uh, go find a coach like that. Find a coach that right. cares about you as a person and knows what, and it's going to help you get what you want. Um, just to make sure we, I, I end the podcast in the right way. Um, on track and field and relaybatons.com. Go to both these websites. They'll take care of you. We will help you and get what you need. Um, Carl Lewis is a living legend. And you know who also is a living legend? Steve Ringgold, our CEO of both the companies. Stick around and he'll let you know how to get in contact with him and social media. Coach, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And um, good luck. And I'll be listening out. Awesome. And then Steve, take us away. Thanks for listening to another epic podcast with our guest, Olympian and head coach, Carl Lewis, and our host, Coach JT Ayers. The On Track and Field podcast is powered by RelayBatons.com. Custom engraved and meet and competition legal Relay Batons. Water bottles and tumblers. Great for team branding, fundraisers, meet awards and coaches gifts. And by OnTrackAndField.com. Cross country and tracks one-stop source for everything you need for a successful season. Competition gear, spikes, training equipment, and shoes. OnTrackAndField.com has everything you need. And you can save up to 50% when you use the word Track Talk at checkout. Some exclusions apply. And make sure to check out our new website, OnTrackRunning.com. Your new source for competition and training shoes. Featuring Saucony, Brooks, On Running, New Balance, Asics, and Hoka Shoes and Spikes. OnTrackRunning.com. And make sure to follow us on our socials in the new year at OnTrack the letter N field at on track and field on Twitter and the gram.